Hey everyone, welcome back to Not Safe for Wonks, fighting bad media narratives with good vibes always. We're here with a fantastic guest today, but before we get there, let's just remind you who the hosts are. I'm Kennedy Cooper. Leia Rose. This is Brandon Buchanan. And we are so excited today to have Lauren Ashcraft with us. Lauren, say hi. Hey everyone. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here speaking with you today. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, well, uh, Lauren is a is a candidate for New York's 12th Congressional District and is a comedian and has a just an incredible Twitter feed. And <laughs> we have been excited to speak with her in person for some time now. And here we are. So Lauren, would you please just tell the audience a little about yourself, who you are, and how you ended up running for New York's 12th District? Yeah, awesome. So I, I have this vision for my district and also for the country that every single person has full and equal representation. And New York's 12th district is a very, very visual representation of the inequalities that our society faces. And whenever we see all of these bailouts and handouts continuously going to huge corporations and billionaires while people are dying in the street every single day, that's happening right here in New York's 12th district, which is mistakenly often considered a very, very wealthy district, when in fact there is a lot of wealth. It's concentrated in a very specific area of the district for the most part. And there are so many people that are homeless on our streets, so many people dying from rationing their insulin, from not having health care coverage and being afraid of going to the emergency room. These problems are all happening right here. And so whenever I talk about people not having full and equal representation, I think about my family who has paid the price in so many ways. So my grandfather was killed by corporate greed when he was a coal miner and was a victim of the Farmington mine disaster. Mm. And my grandmother was an immigrant from Japan and faced extreme xenophobia and racism in her journey to American. And my other grandfather fell while he was working one day and became a quadriplegic. So I unfortunately saw the journey of many God. of my family yeah, many of my family members becoming his caretakers, having to redo the family home so that he could access it, and then also watching him get completely ignored by representatives. So whenever I'm looking at the inequalities faced in my district and in our society, I'm inspired by my family who survived through so many things. And I want to prevent future constituents and future people living in this country from having to be ignored as my family has been. So that's why I'm running. And my particular district, it is it has $200 million condominiums. It also does have people living on the street. And what we need to have happen is that the working class people and oppressed people are the ones that get that full and equal representation finally because they've gone completely ignored. And whenever I look at, for example, our subway system, it is not accessible to people with disabilities. Most of our subway stations do not have elevators. So that's a very vivid example of how an entire population of people has gone completely ignored. And right now in District 12, there's about 53,000 people that identify as having disabilities. That means 53,000 people are going ignored every single day when it comes to getting to where they need to go. We definitely want to talk a lot about the practical access 
that working class people have to political power. And we want to talk about that a lot. I think one of the things that really stood out to me this week, obviously the conflict is what we can call it now in Iran, really blew up into high gear on my birthday, ironically enough. And Kennedy and Leia and I kind of sat down together and just, we talked about all the stress that our friends and our family were feeling. Uh, we had a, a frequent guest on who uh, was, who's, pretty young. And she said, you know, she's got people in her social circle who weren't alive when Afghanistan, you know, started, who are all grown up. And now they're about to be sent into perhaps another military conflict. It's incredible and inhumane. And there's people like me. I'm old enough now. I was born after 9-11, but I'm old enough now to where I could be, I could sign up and be shipped off to fight in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. We've been fighting it for that long. Working people have very little say over the direction of war and peace. They're supposed to have it through Congress, but like apparently a lot of Congress has completely abdicated that responsibility they have to exercise the people's power. Why is that? Like, why is that the case that so many Congress people seem unwilling to vote about it, talk about it, take stands in either direction with or against the president of the United States? Uh, so, so many of these questions, whenever we look at are voting records of people who call themselves progressives. A lot of the things that they vote for and against don't make any sense. And then whenever you look at their open secrets and see over the course of their career who's donated to them, things start making sense and mm -hmm. those questions start being answered. So whenever I look at my opponent, Carolyn Maloney, who's been in office for over a quarter of a century, which wouldn't by itself be a problem. But some of the things that she's voted for are the war in Iraq. She has approved the AUMF, which has granted now three presidents the ability to terrorize the globe as they see fit. And she has accepted defense contractor money from Lockheed Martin and Boeing, for example. And most recently, she voted to increase the military budget and basically write Trump the blank check that he was asking for. So she's funded it, she's approved it, and I believe that that can be answered by looking at who her donors are. And number one, one of the things that I'm campaigning on is I am running a 100% grassroots people-funded and people-powered campaign because I believe that people should be the only influence in politics, not corporate PACs and not super PACs and all of these crazy ways that all these dark dollars can get involved in politics. Eventually, my end goal is that federal elections are publicly financed, which would just cut a lot of this out of politics. But for the meantime, unfortunately, we do have people in office that are making decisions that seem to make absolutely no sense. Whenever we look at the war in Iraq, and know now that we have all facts that it was based on personal profit. Basically, Dick Cheney had dollar signs in his mind whenever he sent people to fight a war. And it cost thousands of American lives and it cost hundreds of thousands of civilian lives in Iraq. And right now we're moving down a very dangerous path where uh, we are murdering people abroad. We are allowing war to happen without any kind of congressional oversight or permission. And I do not feel as though we're being represented as constituents, which is exactly why I'm running so that people finally have a voice again.
That's actually exactly what I wanted to ask next. I just got back from uh, Atlanta protest, uh, no war in Iran. One of the things that I kind of talked about was there is such a complete disgust on the account of normal people with regards to the actions that people who are in Washington are taken. But there's just a cloud between their willpower and their will of, the, of a common person who doesn't want to go and fight overseas and the actual actions that are being taken by Congress. So what does it look like when a Congresswoman Ashcraft is in office? How does a progressive Congress exercise their responsibilities and what kind of checks can they make on the process of going to war in a way that represents people? Oh, absolutely. So I believe it is every single representative's responsibility to do every single thing they can to prevent war rather than start war. And I I just can't wrap my head around the fact that that's been so difficult for our representatives to understand that every time we enter into war, so many people, so many innocent people lose their lives. And we should be preventing that. And not even to mention the natural resources it wastes and also the damage it does to the planet. So Everything, every single decision that I have to make regarding whether we enter into war or not, my answer is going to be no, unless there's absolutely no other option. And I cannot think of any recent war in which that would have been the case. So another thing is we we have granted uh, the president this power to bypass Congress's approval to start this kind of aggression. And we absolutely need to remove that power immediately and make sure that we never grant a single person that kind of power ever again. We should have a system of checks and balances in place to keep one single person from being able to make that type of decision on their own. And whenever we have someone like Donald Trump sitting in the White House, it's horrifying to think that he has that kind of decision-making power. So regardless of who's sitting in the White House, they should not have that kind of power. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and then also just... You know, we did just increase the military budget by, I believe it's $738 billion is what we just approved. And that kind of budget, I would never put my name behind. Whenever we're looking at, you know, people dying in the street because they don't have a home, people can't afford their medicine. There's always a question of, oh, where's the money going to come from for single payer Medicare for all, which is something that I advocate for. But why doesn't anyone ask the same question when it comes to war? So that kind of budget, I will never put my name behind. I think it's fair to say that these wars don't just happen for no reason. Mm -hmm. And that there are a lot of people with, you know, investments and deep interests in seeing this war through and, you know, with seeing with wars in general through so that they profit personally. How do we wind down the machine of American imperialism and actually like do it effectively without them just stepping in? Because it seems like so often they still kind of find a way to just sort of slide in and get their way. Like you say, nobody questions the military budget. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think it really is important. One of the things that my campaign is doing is registering voters and also educating people and spreading the word about why this particular election is so important. And we do have historically low voter turnout for congressional elections and local and state elections. And even though everyone kind of puts the face of the president as the face of the United States, there are so many other levels of government that are so important to get out and vote for. 
because these are the people that can stop a really horrible president from unilaterally deciding that he wants to start a war. So it is important to get people out and vote for Congress and also for every single level of government. Every time there's an election that you're eligible to vote for, you should go. And then maybe we wouldn't see people like Dick Cheney become the vice president and have that kind of power to start a war in Iraq, for example. There are so many things that can prevent this. But what we're seeing is that people's voices are stopped in so many different ways. There's so much voter oppression. Um, There are so many things preventing people from registering, uh, registrations getting lost or deleted. So I actually stand for automatic voter registration and uh, just facilitating the voting process. I mean, I have an idea that mail-in ballots are mailed to every single person uh, who's a registered voter, who should be everyone since uh, voter registration should be automated. And uh, return postage would be included and also a packet of every single thing and every single person that's going to be on the ballot with a brief summary of what they're fighting for and where to find more information about them. So I just feel like that would cut down on politicians' advertising budget, and also it would allow more people to just participate in voting. People can't take off of work. People with disabilities might have a very difficult time making it to the polls, but maybe didn't have the time or ability to request a a mail-in ballot. So I just feel like voting could be done in a much simpler way, and also much more inclusive way so that people can exercise their voice and and stand up for what's right all together in a unified way. Yeah, Uh, and kind of speaking of voting and speaking of elections, now you've talked about publicly funded elections and kind of getting big money out of politics, which is a progressive goal and has been for before, even before Citizens United. But to you, what does publicly funded elections look like? Yeah, so eventually I want to see that there is absolutely no money from corporate PACs, no money from super PACs, no money from any PACs at all. None of that should be involved in politics. And I know in New York City, we have a matching program so that, you know, if you get a certain number of donations that the city is able to match that. I think something like that is a wonderful idea, something to aspire to. But also, um, I had an idea that uh, on your federal tax returns, you could check a box and become eligible for a tax credit that you could actually receive money that you could use to donate to federal elections of your choosing. And then in order to accept that money as a politician running for federal office, you would have to reject corporate and super PAC money. But that burden of figuring out who accepts and rejects corporate PAC money shouldn't be on the person donating or the constituent. It should actually be the burden of the politician running. So people like me, I could safely accept everyone's tax credits, no problem, because I reject all of that money. But somebody like my opponent who accepts, I think it's most of her money now um, in the latest cycle from corporate PACs she would actually have to return everyone's tax credits. And her Act Blue, which is how you donate online, she would have to add a question asking if this is part of your tax credit. If so, I'm not able to accept it. And if somebody mails a check or cash, then somebody from her team has to reach out and ask that person if it's part of their tax credit. And if it is, then they have to say, sorry, we prefer to accept the influence of corporate PACs and we have to reject your contributions. 
Now, for, for a more specific proposal, uh, something that Andrew Yang has proposed and something that in my former hometown of Seattle uh, we're doing is kind of democracy dollars. Yeah. For people who don't know, democracy dollars are vouchers that are given to every registered voter of 25, 50 bucks. And you can only spend these vouchers by sending them to political campaigns and, th- and then they can be redeemed for cash. What are your thoughts on a scheme like that? Yeah, I'm for any kind of policy that empowers people in that way. So I I am definitely for that. I just want to make sure I would like there to be that kind of specification to make sure that people who accept corporate money aren't able to accept those vouchers or those dollars. Right, right. That makes sense. One of the things that I've seen you always fired up about whenever I like watch you talk is giving people who are systemically disfranchised from participating in the political process the ability to participate in that process. And there are so many small barriers to being able to even do something like cast a vote. I live in the state of Georgia, and our state is unfortunately infamous across the nation for having really stringent ballot access laws, for closing down polling stations in cities, especially predominantly black cities. And I know that y'all are having similar problems in New York in terms of people being able to get from place to place to cast their vote or even to just travel around town. Can you talk a little bit about the transportation system in New York and especially how it affects the disabled? Oh, yes. So our transportation system, it excludes people with disabilities in so many ways. So I believe it's 75% of subway stations in New York City or around there do not have elevators and are not accessible to people with disabilities. And we have seen people actually die from falling down the stairs. I've personally seen senior citizens fall down the stairs because they're icy or it just rained and the water's, you know, trickling down the staircase. It's very dangerous and we just need to make sure that we are welcoming people of all abilities into the same subway stations that, you know, I use on a daily basis to get where I need to go. So um, right now we're, we're also having basically a war on poverty in New York City where the New York City Police Department actually added 500 cops that are specifically stationed at subway stations to make sure that people aren't evading their subway fares. So we've seen videos of people having loaded weapons pointed at them, people getting arrested in very aggressive ways just because they couldn't afford a $2.75 subway swipe. So all of this together, you know, the war on poverty, the exclusion of people with disabilities, and also the fact that our subway system, it's so common that we just get stuck. And you're waiting and you're waiting underground and there's really nothing, no announcements other than the fact that you know that there's a signal outage or there's something going on with the signal. And I've learned that there are so many things that needed to be upgraded within our public transit system that just have gotten ignored because, you know, our politicians aren't budgeting for that kind of upgrade. I'm over all of that. And, you know, time's up on all of these politicians that make excuses for the state of our public transit across the entire country. I am for nationalizing public transit. So it's not up to a city or a state how, you know, the state of disrepair that their public transit systems are in. It's going to be nationalized. It should be upgraded, made accessible, and also made efficient so that people can get where they need to go with public transit. 
And most importantly, it needs to be free for everyone. No turnstiles, no tickets, just use public transit. It's the greenest method of transportation. And also we should be helping people get where they need to go. You know, there are people that walk miles every day because they can't afford that $2.75 subway swipe to get to work because they are living in poverty. And we should be making sure that we are elevating people and not criminalizing them because they're facing difficulties. You know, I'm sure that Carolyn Maloney rides the subway. I'm sure it's something that she has done before. However, I've never seen her on one, weirdly enough. (laughs) Is there something that someone who is in Congress right now could and should be doing about that New York issue? It feels like, you know, when we talk about Congresswomen, we often talk about national issues. But like a large part of being in Congress is constituent services. So what constituents in your district has Congresswoman Maloney served and have they all been served? So just the other day, she posted about expanding the Second Avenue subway line that's serving the Upper East Side, which has already been served by another line. So it's really shocking to me that despite all of the calls for prioritizing making the subway system accessible and all of the calls to make sure that we're upgrading our subway so that people don't keep getting stuck and late for work and trying to pile onto a subway where people are literally squeezing together. There are so many ways that we can upgrade what's existing rather than adding more and more service to an already served area. It just so happens to be the corner of the district where most of her donors are. So it all goes back to, you know, you can call yourself progressive, but if you're not actually fighting for the people in the way that they're asking to be fought for, then why are you in office? So I I hear people, I'm out on the street, I was just canvassing today, I canvass all the time, And the subway is one of the things that people are most upset about because people spend over an hour each way to work trying to get to their jobs and we're sick of getting stuck underground. And that's if you can even access the subway system because you're able-bodied. So there's so much going on that has gone completely ignored. And had we had somebody in office that was a vocal advocate of the people for 26 years, which is how long she's been in office, then maybe we wouldn't be facing these issues today. It's so funny. You said something that really flipped a switch in my head. You used the phrase representing people in the way they want to be represented, especially from people who claim to be progressive. Sesta Fosta has been a very huge issue locally here in Georgia. I know it's a big issue in New York, and I think it's an excellent example of people openly saying how they want to be represented and kind of being run over and being ignored. And unfortunately, because it's like about sex work, you can't get it talked about on TV. Look, you've been going and doing media outlets. How often do you even get publicly asked to talk about this issue outside of podcasts like this one? Um, I actually, I think you're maybe the second, like the second or third at most. Yeah, see? Damn. Jeez. Yeah. But it's such an important issue and it is an example. So Carolyn Maloney is for SESTA-FOSTA and she was one of the co-sponsors of FOSTA, I believe. And, um, And that is one of the instances of where we're so different because they have spoken with people um, that are sex workers. And I can't imagine anyone who's ever taken the time to speak with anyone in the industry. There's no way that you could think that SESTA-FOSTA is the right thing to do. I don't understand. So for me, sex work is work. 
My priority is listening to people and understanding, you know, how I can serve them best and make sure that I'm helping to make sure that they're safe and that they feel safe in their industries. And I, I just don't see any other way. When you talk about being a progressive, as someone who's like turning 30 in like two days, uh, growing up. Happy even, birthday. Thank you. Oh, um, man, you're turning to dust right in front of our right. eyes, snapping away um, like Thanos. Go ahead. <laughs> Um, you know, when I was a child, even calling yourself a progressive was kind of a bit of a dirty word. Now, these days, a lot of people are willing to call themselves progressive. However, you call yourself a socialist, um, yeah. which I also do. So don't, you know, you're in good company. But um, <laughs> I'm curious, we kind of have liked to ask a few people who identify as socialists about their relationship to that word. And like, mm. how, how did it come into your life and how did it become a positive? Because I think for a lot of us, it definitely started as a dirty word and it had to be reformed in some way. So what was that for you? There were assumptions that we had to unlearn. Yeah, for sure. I would say like my public schooling gave me a negative impression of socialism and I started to have my eyes opened up. I was an exchange student my senior year of high school in Germany and then was very fortunate in college to, you know, have a scholarship to study abroad in in Sweden for a semester as well. And these are countries that are democratic socialists and they're not afraid to make sure that everybody has health care coverage. And I have been in classrooms with people who pay 500 euros for a semester and that's the most that they would ever pay for their university. I do think that university should be free, but the fact that they're so far ahead of us in so many ways and, and I got to experience that and also reap the benefits of their society while I was over there studying, that really opened up my eyes and helped to kind of form my views at, at a very formative point in my life. And I came home, you know, finished up my schooling. And then a couple years later, I started learning about Bernie Sanders, who I, I do support for president. And his message about corporate money and politics and making sure that people are represented, that really just kind of helped me put a word to what I was feeling. So him representing democratic socialism and also being unafraid to say what he feels has really opened my eyes and and I really was able to kind of solidify my my beliefs after he was really talking about them but I would say that those kind of thoughts that I had in my head started to be formed while I was studying abroad and I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't love my country but I see that other countries are doing things in such more efficient and better ways than we are. And we can learn from them and make sure that people are being represented and not profit. And we're going to see so much change and such an increase in people's quality of lives if we do that. Now, while Sanders and Biden have held strong, a lot of the other centrist uh, standard bearers that have been propped up by the media, you know, uh, Harris, Warren, Buttigieg, and now Bloomberg are kind of fading out. So what do you say to people who are kind of torn between something like Bernie or Biden. Like, why not mm -hmm. Biden? Because the primaries are due to start in about a month and yeah. know, things are going to get serious. Yes, there have been so many instances of Joe Biden kind of telling us exactly what he represents and what he stands for. And we like to kind of label them as gaffes. You know, his interaction with individuals from Sunrise Movement were horrifying, where he was 
very patronizing when someone was asking him about his stances. He's told us exactly what he represents, and we can see in his fundraising and and who's holding fundraisers for him exactly who his influences are. And he did vote for war. He's not helped to push for equality of every single human. You know, his stances on anti-racism, he could he could have taken stronger stances on, on anti-racism in so many different ways, but he continues to push neoliberalism and centrist ideas. Another example is how he's kind of gone back and forth on the war on drugs, where he's called marijuana, for example, a gateway drug. And that's pretty offensive to me, knowing that so many people are sitting in prison right now throughout our entire country, mostly people of color, because they have used or sold marijuana, which doctors are prescribing. And so many studies have shown that it helps people. And regardless of whether it helps or hurts people, we're seeing that it's ruining people's lives to be thrown in prison because of it. And I want to see somebody take strong stances against mass incarceration. I want to see people take strong stances against war. And I want to see people take strong stances against anything that's causing divides and inequality and in oppression in our society. I have not seen that from Joe Biden. I see that every single day with Bernie Sanders. So kind of close your eyes and picture Election Day 2019. Lauren Ashcraft is in as an incoming congresswoman and there's a new president. His name is Bernie Sanders. Now, what can the team of uh, Ashcraft and Sanders kind of do for women in New York and women in your district? No. So I, that's, this is one of the things I am so passionate about gender equality and my activism and my background before getting involved in running for office was on the streets activism for gender equality. So I helped to plan the Women's March in New York. And also as a stand-up comedian, a lot of the shows that I hold are fundraisers for women's rights and civil rights and nonprofits throughout the community. So whenever I think of women's rights, it actually, it always has to be intersectional women's rights. So we see, we still see a wage gap between women and men, but especially between women of color and men, and especially between trans women and men. So whenever I'm fighting for women's rights, it absolutely has to be an intersectional battle. And I haven't necessarily seen that from my opponent. Um, So whenever I think about things that I need to do to make sure that there's gender equality across the entire United States, I want to make sure that we're not sending women to war to kill women abroad. I want to make sure that I am forcing pay transparency at huge corporations and making sure that I stand up against corporate greed, which is starving a lot of women of their pay and what they're they're rightly owed. And we need to fight unfair taxation, make sure that corporations and billionaires are paying their fair share, and that we remove a lot of the burden that's been placed on working people to pay into our society what billionaires and corporations should have been paying. And also we need to make sure that we're pushing for paid parental leave and also fighting for universal childcare, which is really important and something that I'm personally very concerned about given the fact that I live in New York City, which is really expensive. I am a working class person. I have no idea in the coming years how I'm supposed to afford paying for childcare, which is something that I, I think about as someone who's 30 and in a serious relationship. I have no idea how I would ever afford that. And 
I would like kids someday. So there are so many things that I just wish we had real everyday people who struggle to pay their bills and, and struggle with everyday issues representing us at all levels of government because I feel like these battles would have been fought for us and I wouldn't necessarily have to be running if I felt like I'd been represented all this time. But as somebody who has fought for women's rights on the streets, I am really happy to fight for women's rights, specifically intersectional women's rights in D.C. as well. Now, we just have to ask about this. You are lucky enough to be uh, getting consultation from one of the perhaps greatest political minds, some would say, also one of the most divisive political people in the country right now, Peter Dow. What's yeah. it like getting advice from the guy who used to run the John Kerry war room? <laughs> so Peter Dow uh, and, and also his wife, Leela, they've been incredible in terms of... Um, supporting me and my message and helping to make sure um, that my message always remains authentic to who I am. Um, and that that is my priority is I started this journey because of my morals and what I represent and what I felt people aren't being heard for. And I never want to lose that. You know, you get a lot of unsolicited advice when you run for office, probably especially as a young woman doing so. And what I have felt very strongly is that Peter and Leela have prioritized me remaining completely authentic to myself and my message and why I even set out on this journey in the first place. So the fact that I am 100% all chips in on Bernie and that I'm people powered and people funded, they've been really wonderful to work with. And I also am a fan of their journey that they've been really public about. I was born in actually West Virginia and grew up in Western Pennsylvania. Steel and coal countries in my blood. And I come from a really conservative area. And I've made a political journey myself through my education, from leaving that area, from living abroad, and from also living in New York City. And I appreciate that they are sharing their journey and kind of creating in the space for others to follow in their footsteps. Because whenever I think about how we're going to win, it doesn't happen if it's an exclusive club of people who've always felt that way. We have to welcome people. Otherwise, why are we canvassing and knocking on doors and convincing people to vote for Bernie Sanders, for example, if we're not going to allow them to? So I'm personal fans of them. They've been great to work with. And, and I'm really excited about this journey together. Lindsay Boylan is also somebody who talks a lot about a moral voice in her politics. And she's also, coincidentally enough, like in, in Dow World. Yeah. Have you guys met? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've been really fortunate to, you know, get to know her throughout her campaign. And, and I'm a big fan of hers as well. On our show, when we don't have a guest, once in a while, I'd say maybe once a month, we do like a game show segment called Is It Cringe? And yes, the, <laughs> word, the, the word cringe is cringe. Doing a game show segment called Is It Cringe is cringe. We already went over that. For the entire history of the show, we've done it with just the three of us, the occasional guests, but we thought it'd be cool to do it with a candidate. So would you like to hang out with us for a few minutes and do like the first ever official candidate version of Is It Cringe? Yes, I would love to. Is <laughs> it cringe? <Hell> yeah. <laughs> I'm so excited. It's uh, a very simple game. We, we tell you something that exists. Usually it's borderline. Sometimes it's a dunk. But you decide whether it's cringe or not. Awesome. Uh, okay. It's wonderful. It's always a blast. 
To be honest, we knew we had to do this segment because of your like mean tweets thing. Oh um, yeah. I don't want to derail, but that's like one of my favorite things that you do on Twitter. <laughs> Thank it's the greatest you. thing any congressional candidate has ever done. <laughs> Wait, are are you going to continue to do mean tweets if you get in office? Oh, for sure. I think like people ask me all the time if if I'm going to continue. I mean, every once in a while I crack jokes and um, I am a comedian. That's my background. So while a lot of the stuff, you know, talking about war, talking about people having representation, that's serious to me. And that's not a joke. But if we can't occasionally laugh at ourselves, which is what my mean tweets are doing, then who are we? We, ha- we have yeah. to have a little fun. So Mean tweets, it's it's hilarious because I I actually really enjoy hearing what people think of what I'm saying and sometimes they totally disagree, but why not have a little fun with it? The tweets are gonna get so much faster and so much more furious when you are actually <laughs> on C SPAN and like passing some bill that people hate. They'll get oh, it's gonna be it's You're gonna giving be people health care. Oh, stop it. So <laughs> you dare you. Why are you like this? <laughs> That's so funny. One of the one of the things I thought was funniest about uh, what Michael Brooks said yesterday is he was trying to understand why people absolutely hate Bernie Sanders. Like this poor guy is traveling around just trying to give you health care. <laughs> like I don't get it, but yeah. Well, in the spirit of laughing at ourselves with ourselves, just being a little goofy, let's do this. Is it cringe? <laughs> Andrew Yang's karaoke fundraiser. You spend $2,000. You get to hang out with Andrew Yang and sing with him. Is it cringe? Cringe. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Uh, Didn't we talk about this before or something like this? Andrew Yang and karaoke. And it it, it was one of the very first episodes. We did talk about him doing karaoke um, in the context of his spending, of weird candidate spending. We were going through this article about weird things the candidates were spending money on. And Andrew Yang had spent some money on, like, karaoke. So I guess this must be the realization of that spending. Oh my gosh. I can't, like, I, I watched part of the video and I couldn't. I was too embarrassed, and it's not even me. I couldn't finish. <laughs> Andrew Yang is the perfect encapsulation of karaoke. Yeah. Something for, like, young adults who are like a little inebriated and want something <laughs> fucking stupid to do with their day <laughs> and just embarrass themselves. I am proud of him. I like people who can let their freak flag fly. So for for that for that video, you know what? He didn't care who's watching. So Obviously I'll give him that. <laughs> Obviously not. The concept I, I think the concept of it is cringe. Maybe the singing, his singing itself wasn't too cringe, but like having a karaoke fundraiser is undeniably a cringe fundraiser. Have no having a high ticket karaoke. Oh, yeah. If you if you're like if you're like this is a ten dollar, we're gonna have, do a fundraiser at a bar and do karaoke. I'm not gonna like call you out. That's not that's that's okay. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I feel like the ticket price is inversely proportional to the quality of karaoke. <laughs> yes. Who who the fuck is gonna pay two thousand dollars and be like competent at karaoke? I'm just gonna get the worst <laughs> singers. The best singers would come in for like five bucks and a beer. There is no professional singer that I would pay that much. Like, first of all, no, not even if we like brought Frank Sinatra back to life. 
for a concert, I wouldn't pay $2,000 to hear it. So I don't know who's Damn. paying $2,000 to hear it. Every- Not even if we brought Frank Sinatra back to life. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, get, I get your point. Like a professional, a real concert, I wouldn't pay that much money for. So why am I paying that much money for like rich <laughs> dipshits to, right? not, to sing poorly? Yes. I call that fiscal responsibility. So I'm, good, I'm glad to know you, that you have it. <laughs> Thank you. It'll serve you well during your tenure. Absolutely. <laughs> When any of these Republicans want to spend two thousand dollars on karaoke, like tell them no, tell them get out, get get out, leave. Hopefully, there aren't many left at in twenty twenty, so you don't have to worry about them that much. They're, they can <laughs> all fit into like one table, and you can just push the table into a corner and not have to think about them anymore. I will just offer myself. I will offer to sing them the entire Hamilton soundtrack. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> For free. <laughs> um, uh, next item. Next line item. This is a closer call, and you've got to be the, the cringe line judge. Uh, Americans making memes about World War III. Uh, is this like a valid oh. reaction to stress, or are they not taking things seriously enough? Um, that, I, honestly, I'm going to go ahead and see cringe. Um, war is just so, I mean, I'm a comedian too. War I'm sure the best comedians can make some sort of joke about it. I'm just so worried about World War Three and war that it's it's not a joke to me. A lot of them, a lot of them are just fucking stupid. Like Dafu, when you go to Iran and you see someone fucking a sheep, what the frick? Yeah, it's, it's not good. I mean, that's bad on so many levels. So I'm gonna reinforce my cringe vote on this one. Well, even if you're making like a somewhat kind of relevant or nuanced joke, I I think one of my favorite stories to tell in this regard is that George Carlin made a comedy special once, and it was one of his biggest comedy specials towards the end of his life. And he uh, was going to have a slightly, more than slightly, very edgy joke about genocide in it. And about two days after he wrapped up filming was 9-11. And he cut that Uh. joke. And George Carlin is like often held on this pedestal of the guy who was willing to say anything. But he cut that joke and he didn't even hesitate because he knew that sometimes jokes are about timing. And it was different. You know, like if you were making World War Three memes six months ago, you probably weren't necessarily cringe. But doing it right now in this moment is bad comedic timing. Yes, I agree. It's been said by a lot of other people recently, but, like, it's kind of poor taste because contrary to what, like, the LAPD Twitter account is saying, there's no threat to Americans. There's probably not going to be a draft. It's like the only people that are going to hurt from this are the Iranian people, the Iraqi people, the global poor, as is hurt in every single war. Like, sit down. You're going to be just fine. Yeah. Think about how many civilians this is going to fucking slaughter. I don't think that a lot of people really wrap their heads around how many innocent people have died because of our recent wars. I just don't, I don't know. Yeah, I can't. Iraq has been memory hold and we don't fucking understand what war is and what it costs. Yes. And I don't think nobody who put us into that situation should still be in office. That's my opinion. And also, if you don't have a fear and like a sick feeling whenever you think about us starting another war, 
I'm having a lot of difficulty relating to you as a human. I don't understand. War is terrible. And we should be doing every single thing we can to avoid any future ones, not start them. Yeah. Lauren Ashcraft, working at J.P. Morgan, was it cringe? <laughs> um, <laughs> so I quit my job. Maybe listening to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, working for any huge corporation, especially in the financial sector, I personally find cringe. In my district, about 15% of people rely on their jobs and paychecks from the financial sector to pay their rent. And we've set up a society in which people have to rely and interact with capitalism to survive. And that in itself is totally cringe. And also, I actually recently wrote kind of a blog entry about this as well. But one of the things that has made me the most furious in my life is that Donald Trump has handed so, so many handouts to these huge corporations in the forms of tax cuts. And one of the things that has hit my district the hardest is that these tax cuts ended up being bonuses and raises and stock buybacks and everything for the senior executives at all of these companies, including JP Morgan. But did that money trickle down to average workers, which are my future constituents? Absolutely not in any of the industry. In fact, a lot of the banking industry is laying off people, especially in New York, and either moving them, relocating, or hiring new people in much cheaper areas. So while this area is the headquarters for so many different banks, we're feeling a lot of you know the pain of downsizing and the fact that trickle-down economics is a lie. Mm. So cringe. <laughs> Long answer short, cringe. Cringe. <laughs> Is eating meat cringe, Lauren Ashcraft? Ooh, uh, you! I'm so impressed with uh, how up to date you are on on my life. <laughs> <laughs> we try to do research. I'm so impressed. Thank you. Thank you all. Um, so I I love meat, but I actually I have some health reasons that I've had to cut it out of my life. So I will say it's not cringe in terms of flavor <laughs> but in terms of <laughs> what it does to the environment is cringe so uh for me even though i wish i could just down pepperoni pizza and cheeseburgers every day i can't <laughs> but also i do feel a little bit good about minimizing my impact on the environment and factory farming is one of the main contributors to our greenhouse gases and the problems that we face mm -hmm. um environmentally so cringe and not cringe at the same time okay that's fair i'll take it uh final item yes last is cringe capitalism <laughs> cringe Cringe. Yes. Capitalism is uh, a system that's set up to benefit the people and corporations at the very top. So it's capitalist, I guess you can say that, yes, District 12 has billionaires. It also has people that are sleeping on the street in January. That's capitalism. And people that are suffering from substance use disorder and don't have anywhere to go, that's capitalism. The fact that, you know, my partner went to a, a health clinic for something that he was facing and got a huge bill because he was out of network. That's capitalism. And I am pushing for democratic socialism, which means that people come first. 
and that we're prioritizing people over profit. So for example, instead of having in-network, out-of-network and surprise bills from going to the doctor when you need to go, you're just going to be covered. So cringe. Capitalism is cringe. Yes! We want to- <laughs> that's, a, that's a perfect answer. <laughs> no disagreement there. Capitalism be cringe. Uh, that, that'll probably be the title of this episode <laughs> <laughs> awesome um lauren ashcraft thank you so much for being here with us today it has been an absolute pleasure to speak with you and to hear you talk passionately about so many important subjects could you please let our audience know uh what does your campaign need right now and how can they reach you especially over the internet Oh, thank you so much for asking. And it's been a real pleasure to be on the show with all of you today. So what my campaign needs, we are grassroots funded, which means, you know, we are going up against somebody who accepts huge corporate PAC dollars, but we're, we're stretching every dollar that we get in the best way that we can and, and fighting the real fight. So grassroots fundraising really goes a long way. Our average donation, I believe, is $25 right now. So any donation that you're willing to give, or if you have friends that are politically active and interested in donating, they can do so at laurenashcraft.com. And also, I would love if you follow me at Vote Ashcraft on all of the social medias and interact and uh, would love to hear from you as to any questions you have or anything you'd like me to advocate for. Absolutely must follow Vote Ashcraft on Twitter. It is probably like a top three political feed in the entire world. It's incredible. Pretty good. (laughs) I'm very honored that you said that. Thank you. Well, we were honored to speak with you, like I said. And uh, if you are listening to the show and you love what we do, please consider going to patreon.com slash not safe to support the development of this show and all of the other media that we work on, like the things that we put on YouTube and that kind of stuff too. Uh, If you like the content, you gotta show us. (laughs) And at the very least, retweet us on Twitter and all that good stuff. Should cost uh, money to run. As always, thank you so much for listening. Um, we appreciate you, and you know it's it's gonna be another crazy week in politics, and we'll be here to talk about it. Until next time. See ya. Bye. <laughs>